sense. You probably have a lot. In pockets, in your car, hiding in the bottom of drawers, quarters stacked by fours, and pennies lost under pillows. Sometimes scents even turn up from other countries. Where'd you get that? But the truth is, no matter how many scents we have, sometimes we still lack sense. S-E-N-S-E, sense. Sense is what keeps us from spending our money on things like sports cars we can't afford, or pet turtles listed on eBay as very shy. I don't think there's a turtle in there. But there's more to it than that. Sense tells us how many drive through lattes is too many, and how to plan for retirement. And what about what God says? How much money should you be giving to the church or to charity? How can you tell if God is calling you to spend money on something or to save a purchase for later? Or for never? Sense is what helps us navigate how to spend our cents. I mean, let's face it, our money is important to us. We care about it. Dollars and cents are what give us the ability to take adventures with family, make memories with friends, travel the world, and make an impact. God cares about your money too, and he wants to help you manage it. We all have sense. How will you use yours? So in the summer of 2007, our economy was tanking. We were in a two-front war with Iraq and Afghanistan. Linda and I and the kids were in our last military assignment before we'd retire. We were stationed in Seoul, South Korea. We were watching one of our investments because as the economy was tanking, one of our investments was really pouring out money. I mean, we were losing money by the day. So Linda and I prayed about it, and we decided to fly back here to good old Fort Ferndale and, and buy a house to take, take that money and put it on a down payment on a house. It, it was the worst time to buy a house. Uh, the housing prices were through the roof. The interest rates were through the roof. Everybody said, don't buy a house, so what do we do? We bought a house. That's 2007. Fast forward one year, 2008. We're still living in Seoul, South Korea, and the interest rates, the economy crashes, the housing market crashes like three weeks after we bought the house, and the, all the prices came down. Yeah, it was just not, not the best thing. Fast forward to 2008, and the interest rates came down, so we decided to refinance. Now remember, it's 2008. Back then, banks weren't real savvy about doing refinancing over the internet and all that good stuff, so we had to go the old-fashioned way of faxing. We found a bank that got us our right mortgage rate. We were excited, and so we refinanced, and we started paying ahead on that mortgage. We wanted to pay that 30-year mortgage off in 15 years. Fast forward to 2009. We're still in Seoul, South Korea. We retire from the military, praise God, get on the plane, fly back here to the States, and what do you do if you've been living overseas for so many years and you fly back to the States, you pay homage to the patron saint of gluttony and cholesterol and go to Denny's. And so we went to Denny's and then we got our Costco cards and we're all excited about that. And then we got our cell phones. And as soon as we got our cell phones, my cell phone started ringing off the proverbial hook. And I answered it and it was a creditor. And he's saying, hey, um, we're going to foreclose on your house. I'm going, What? He goes, yeah, you're behind on your payments. I'm going, what do you mean? We're ahead on our mortgage payments. He said, no, Clyde, I don't know if you're up on current events here. When you signed on the dotted line, you signed up for a line of credit with that mortgage, and you haven't touched that. And I'm going, oh, 
I didn't know that. Okay, how much do we owe? And it was just a few thousand dollars. So I called the bank, which I will refer to as the Spawn of Satan Bank, because <laughs> they did not want to work with us at all. So I said, okay, at the end of the day, what do I got to do? I'm just going to pay off this line of credit. We paid off the stupid line of credit, but the problem was is the damage was already done. We had our 850 credit score that we had worked for so long to get, Linda and I had worked so hard for, plunged below 500. It would take us about seven years to get back to a higher credit score that was acceptable. But what was interesting about that is this. The point of the story is this. It's not that, that uh, you got to do good financial management. That's a good thing. It's not to beware if you refinance from overseas. Yeah, that's a good thing too. The point of the story is this. When my 850 credit score tanked below 500, I was wrecked. It was one of those things in which I had this love and desire of wealth. That had become an idol in my life. And we all know that when you have an idol and the idol implodes, you get great stress, great anxiety, and depression. And that's what happened to me. Have you ever considered that a desire for wealth, a desire for wealth will poison you, will, will blind you to what's truly important in life, in fact, that money, its absence or its presence, can cause poisonous discontent, such as what we're going to talk about today. In fact, if you get anything at all out of today's teaching, understand this, that the love of money will make you discontent. The love of money will make you discontent. If you're putting all of your hope into your possessions, into your wealth, your hope is in the wrong place because our true sufficiency can only come from Jesus Christ. Well, God's got a lot to say about that as we hit our, our second and final week of our series uh, called Dollars and Cents. It's in the series in which week one, Pastor Bob did such a great job giving us some financial wisdom. He went back to the, the book of Proverbs and brought out some great biblical ways to, to guide ourselves when we are planning our finances. It was kind of creepy, though, because Pastor Bob did this thing, I'm talking to you as a father to his children. It was almost cult-like. And we were going to serve you guys Kool-Aid at the end of it and, you know, see who would live and who would die, but we decided not to. So I had a friend of mine come to me this week, and he said, okay, so Big Daddy Bob did the dad-to-kid talk. Are you going to do the mom guilt and shame talk? You know, you never call me no more. What? The telephone, it works both ways. You never like the Facebook status that I give. Lots of love, LOL. I'm not going to do that. No guilt and shame, okay? No guilt and shame as we hit week two. I'm actually excited about this. I'm excited about teaching this because money can be a trap. And it was a trap for me. It was a trap for, for Linda and I. And, and I, I'm excited about getting to share what God says about that and, and give us some remedies on how to get out of that trap, to, to give us some remedies to have contentment in our life specifically with finances, but also in other areas. So we're going to hang out in two chunks of Scripture, 1 Timothy chapter 6 and Luke chapter 12. So turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6, and, and let me set the scene for what's going on. Go with me back 2,000 plus years ago. Jesus goes to the cross, dies, his berries, is buried and is resurrected. Fast forward about 30 or 35 years, and the Apostle Paul is writing to his spiritual son, Timothy. Timothy is his protege, and he's a senior pastor of a church as a young man. So Paul writes to him about the dangers of money, the dangers of, of discontent. So let's look at this. 1 Timothy 6, verses 6 through 8. Remember our main thought, money can poison you by its absence or its presence. The love of money will make you discontent. Right, here we go. Paul writes, but godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. 
for we've brought nothing into the world, so we can't take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. So he comes right out and says, wealth does not bring contentment. In late 1700s, early 1800s, a pastor by the name of Jonathan Edwards gave a really cool sermon on contentment. And he said, if you're a Christ follower, you need to be content in life because of three things. First thing, you have to understand that no matter what you go through, God is always going to bring beauty out of the ashes. You know, we see that in Romans 8, 28, that God works for the good of all who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. Then he said that we have to understand that Jesus will never leave us nor forsake us. When we go through a difficult time, he's going to walk with us through that valley of the shadow of death. So we have to be content, and we're going to go through multiple valleys in our lives. And then last but not least, he said this, this phrase is very popular today, the best is yet to come. The best is yet to come. And he quoted this contentment passage out of Philippians 4, verses 11, 13. So, so we're going we're gonna to come back to Timothy, but let's look at this because it ties together. Philippians 4, 11 through 13. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry both of having abundance and suffering in need. I can do all things, all things through him, Jesus, who strengthens me. Paul tells us here that, that contentment is a habit and it's a learned habit. He's learned all about that. And what he does is he looks back on his past and he sees everything that's happened in his life, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And he had a whole lot of good, but he also had a whole lot of ugly happen to him in life. And he looks back on that and he says, now that I look back on that, I look ahead. And as I look ahead, the best is yet to come because I can do all things through Jesus who strengthens me. Nothing can keep me down because of Jesus. Contentment is all about having this inner peace despite of outward circumstances. And that's so true in financial times and in financial, with financial issues. In fact, if you look at contentment and finances, true contentment comes from godliness in the heart, not wealth in the hand. True contentment comes from this godliness in the heart. That's why Paul says, godliness is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. It's not about wealth in the hand. If, if you're looking for your wealth to give you assurance, to give you peace, to give you self-worth, you're looking at the wrong place because Jesus can only give, only Jesus can give us that. So one of the things I love as a pastor is I get to, to walk with people in life. I get to walk through the highs, lows, and wins and losses. And having worked with a, a few addicts in my life, every addict will tell you that there's something called a tolerance effect when it comes to whatever it is they're addicted to. So let's use drugs as an example. Uh, you, you take a drug, you get the high, then you crash. So then you take it again and again and again. And the more you take the drug, the more your body tolerates it. So you have to have more in order to get the high. And the same is true for us when we become hyper-focused on money. Think about it. If you become hyper-focused on money, you start thinking that an, a luxury item, whatever that luxury item may be, is actually a necessity. And when a luxury items, item becomes a necessity, that's when you're trapped. That's why Paul says, be content, Timothy. You've got to be content. He looks back on his past, and he sees all that Jesus has done. And he can say, now, I can do all things through Jesus who strengthens me. 
And here's the thing about Jesus. Jesus talks a lot about money. He talks a lot about greed. In fact, look at his 39 parables. 11 out of the 39 parables deal with money or greed in some way, shape, or form. If you take all of Jesus' words in the New Testament, more than 25%, more than a fourth of his words, deal with money and greed. If you look at the Gospel of Luke alone, six out of the 24 chapters, a fourth of the, the Gospel of Luke deals with money and greed. Money meant a lot to Jesus in the sense that he knew that money could grip our hearts. It's that love of money that could grip us, grip us and pull us away from God. And so Jesus spoke a lot about money and greed. He knew that that, that that grip, when money has a grip on your heart, that it would push against those three Christian characteristics of faith, hope, and love. You know, with faith, am I going to be generous with my money? Because if I am, is God going to show up and take care of me? Hope. Where, where's my hope? Is my hope in my stuff or is my hope in Jesus? And love. What do I love more, God or do I love money? So Paul says, I've looked back on my past. I'm looking ahead. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So let's go back to Timothy. 1 Timothy 6, verses 8 through 10. He continues. If we had food and covering with these, we shall be content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare. It's a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money, the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. So Paul tells us that the issue here is the love of money. Money's a great thing. We can use money to alleviate suffering in so many ways in life. But when we love it, that's when we're trapped. Several months ago, I, I preached a sermon here on the rich young ruler. It's a story of a, a, a Jewish synagogue, a young Jewish synagogue leader. He's got power, he's got influence, and he's got some kaching. And Jesus is out doing stuff, and he wants to get to know Jesus. So he comes up to Jesus and says, hey, good rabbi, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, hey, you know the commandments. Jesus lists out all the different commandments. And he goes, I keep those. And then Jesus looks at him. He looks at him with love. And he says, one thing you lack. The one thing you lack is you need to sell your stuff. And then you can follow me. And the guy was broken. He couldn't do it because money had that grip on the heart. It was a snare. It's what Paul talked about, a snare. In, in Paul's time, uh, the way they would catch birds is they'd just have a rope with a noose on the end of it. You'd throw it on the ground, put some bird feed in it. The bird would come along, peck, peck, peck. And you're hiding in the woods or hiding in the, in the weeds. And you pull on it when the bird's in there and it snaps them by the neck. And the love of money is that same way. It's a snare for us. Timothy Keller said these words. He said that money will trap you in two ways if you love it. The first thing it will do is it's going to blind you to who you actually are. What he means is we can, we can overgeneralize our success in one area in life to other areas. So if, if I'm successful with money, if I'm a good financial planner in my finances, things are going well, I can say I must be wise then in my relationships. I must be wise in my career. And we can get overconfident and we can get pride. That pride goes up and our teachability goes down. So it can blind us to who we actually are but it can also blind us to what we actually have or what we actually need. Because when we love money, we think that those luxury items are necessities and we'll do anything to get those necessities. That's why he says it's a trap, it's, it, it's a snare, and we're going to sin. Uh, greed is a sin, so what we do is we buy stuff that we don't need with money that we don't have because we want more and we want more. It's that whole tolerance effect 
all over again. So he gives us a remedy. Let's look at the remedy he gives us, verses 11 and 12. But flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called, and you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. So he says, here's, here's what you got to do. If you got that temptation of, of greed, you got that temptation of loving money, you got to run away from it, but it's more than that. You run away, but you pursue faith, hope, and love. You pursue those Christian characteristics. And you stay in the arena and you fight the good fight of faith because the enemy, Satan, wants to, to grab a hold of our hearts and he does it so often through our pocketbooks. Paul knew that his young protege, Timothy, would worry. And Jesus knew that too. So what I want us to do is I want us to, to take all these great words from Paul. We're going to put them in our toolbox, and we can use them in life. We can also apply them later on in today's teaching. So we're going to put Paul to the side, and let's go now and, and, and look at some words from Jesus. Go back to Luke chapter 12. And in Luke chapter 12, Jesus is about halfway through his earthly ministry. And, and he's, he's, he's speaking to a whole bunch of people with his disciples right there with him. Now, he's thrown down with the Pharisees, and he's just told the Pharisees, you guys are a bunch of hypocrites. You do what looks good on the outside, but in your heart, your heart is so far from God. And it's no coincidence that he then talks about money. All of Luke chapter 12 is about money and greed. And I don't know about you guys, but I've been extremely hypocritical with my money before in my life, so it perfectly it makes perfect sense that he rolls right in to talking about money. He still tells a story about a rich fool. This guy's sitting back, and he's got a lot of stuff. He's got a lot of money. He's got a lot of things. And he's looking back. He goes, man, look at this storehouse that I have. It is full. I'm going to get more. I'm just going to get more. So I think I'll tear down this storehouse, and I'm going to make a whole bunch more storehouses because I got the stuff going on. And God shows up and says, you fool. Don't you know that this night I'm going to demand your very soul from you and you will die? My dad used to have a saying. He said, you can't take it with you when you go. You've never seen a U-Haul pulled behind a hearse. And his point was always that don't get so focused on your stuff because that's the temporal. You've got to focus on the eternal. So Jesus tells this story and then he looks at his disciples and he goes, not so with you. Because his disciples have sold everything to follow Jesus. And he knows that the rich are prone to be greedy, but those without money, it could be a trap too, and they could worry. So let's look at this. Luke 12, verses 22, let's start at verse 22 to 23. And remember, this is tied, this whole passage on worry, it's one of the most, uh, I don't know, famous passages in the Bible on worry. It's specifically tied to finances. Here we go. And he, Jesus, said to his disciples, For this reason I say to you, do not worry about your life as to what you will eat, nor for your body as to what you will put on. For life is more than food and the body more than clothing. So he sits down and, says, and lays the groundwork. And he, he doesn't say, don't worry, be happy. Don't worry, be happy now. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, don't worry about planning for your future. He doesn't say, hey, you don't have to work. God wired us to work. And there are times when we have to lean into our jobs. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, sit back and understand that God has your back. That you've sold everything. The rich are prone to be greedy, but you poor folks, you're prone to worry about the basic provisions. Do not worry about that. And his point is that you're not free from the dangerous power of money even though you don't have any. 
Corey Tenboom, she's one of my heroes. She wrote these words. She said, worry does not empty tomorrow of its sorrow. It empties today of its strength. And isn't that true? When you get so hyper-focused on finances and worrying, you, you, you get so worried about the, when your paycheck is going to come in, how you can pay the rent and everything, and it just zaps you of your strength. You can't even live. So Jesus is saying, God is going to provide for you. He's going to take care of you. So don't be absorbed with money. Verses 24 and 25. Jesus continues, Consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap. They have no storeroom nor barn, and yet God feeds them. How much more valuable you are than the birds. And which of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his lifespan? One of the things cool about Jesus when he talks, he always does this lesser to greater thing. He says, Consider these nasty ravens. The Jewish people, ravens were unclean birds, and they were nasty. You wouldn't come near a raven. He says, if God's going to take care of these ugly, nasty birds, don't you think he's going to take care of you, child of God, because he loves you? Yet, we have a tendency to replace God with money. We spend a whole lot of time building a life, you know? We pour everything in to, to working and working and working and getting more and getting the bigger house and the nicer car, but there's, there's a big difference between making a living and making a life. It's a huge difference. Making a living is, is about serving the almighty dollar. Making a life is about serving God and opening your hand and your heart to whatever he wants to do in your life, to having that purpose that he gives you, to being able to face all difficulty, no matter what that is, through Jesus who gives you strength. That's how you make a life. Jesus would always say that the only thing that gives us value is the unconditional love of the Father. So he continues, verses 26 through 28. If then you cannot do even a very little thing, why do you worry about other matters? Consider the lilies and how they grow. So he's going to the lesser. Consider the lilies and how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, but I tell you, not even Solomon in all of his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today, and then tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, how much more will he clothe you, you men of little faith? So he's talking to his disciples who have given up everything. And he says, you got to make a choice. The choice is going to be either love God or you love money. One's going to be an idol. One is the creator of heaven and earth. See, money is a great servant, but it's a terrible master. It's a great servant. We can do so many things with money. We can grow God's kingdom. We can alleviate suffering. There are great things we can do with money. Money is not evil. It's the love of money. And when we love money, that's when it becomes a master. And God gives us that ability to choose when we choose money. We become extremely discontent, and we worry, and we worry, and we worry some more about our finances. When you're spending all of your time worrying about your finances, you're trapped. It's the snare. It's got you. Let's keep on going, verses 29 and 30. Jesus says, And do not seek what you will eat and what you will drink, and do not keep worrying. For all these things the nations of the world eagerly seek, but your Father knows that you need these, these things. But seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. He says something that's really easy to skip over, the nations of the world. What he's talking about is, for us, he says, people who don't follow Jesus... Their priorities can be misconstrued. They can be in the wrong place. They can be looking at the wrong things. And they worry about all these types of things because that's what their God is. But not so with you, Christ follower. I go back 
to those words of Jonathan Edwards. Let's just apply that contentment to financial contentment. Maybe you're going through a really, really difficult time. Jesus will always bring beauty out of the ashes of your life in some way, shape, or form when you release and trust him. He will never leave you nor forsake you. He will walk through that valley of the shadow of bankruptcy with you. That time when you, you don't have the right job and you're, you're working and working and trying to get that job, he will never leave you for, nor forsake you. He's going to walk with you. You can do all things through him who strengthens you because the best is yet to come. The best is yet to come. Seek his kingdom is what he talks about. Paul, he gives us a remedy. Paul says, flee from these things. Run away from these things. Flee from these things and pursue righteousness. Fight the good fight of faith. Jesus gives us a remedy here, verses 30 through 34. But seek his kingdom and these things will be added to you. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. And then he gives us the remedy, a remedy that we don't like to hear because this is a tough remedy. Sell your possessions and give to charity. Oh, make yourselves money belts which do not wear out. He's talking about about focusing on the eternal rather than the temporal. On an unfailing treasure in heaven where no thief comes nor moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus tells us that money, the love of money, has a way to trap our hearts, but money in and of itself can transform our lives if we handle it well, if we handle it responsibly, if we handle it keeping the big picture in mind that God is the master and money is the servant. And what he calls us to do, Pastor Bob quoted the Red Hot Chili Peppers last week, so I thought I'd do it again because Pastor Bob's my hero. So the Red Hot Chili Peppers say, give it away, give it away, give it away now. Give it away, give it away, give it away now. Okay, nobody heard that song. <laughs> that won't make it to the next service, that's for sure. Wow. Crickets. Um, he says, open your hands and give it away. So what I want us to do, I want to get very practical now, for the next, I don't know, 15 minutes or so, about what that means. No guilt and shame, okay? We're not going to take a second offering, freak not, okay? That's, it's okay. But I do want to talk about the spiritual discipline of giving because it's so important in our life. Spiritual disciplines. To be a disciple of Jesus, there are several spiritual disciplines. The things that we do, not to be saved, but in order to grow in our relationship. Uh, let me give you an example. Right in the middle of our, our 21 days of prayer and fasting. Prayer and fasting are two spiritual disciplines. And it's so cool to hear all the different stories of people who are participating in this. The breakthroughs in life that God's doing right now. It's, it's amazing. Those are two important spiritual disciplines. Another spiritual discipline is spending time in God's Word. That's a good thing. It's a spiritual discipline. Um, serving, serving inside the walls, serving outside the walls. Those are our spiritual disciplines. A spiritual discipline that we don't like to talk about a lot is the spiritual discipline of giving. Because I got to tell you, as pastors, we don't like to, to see that person say, all the church wants is my money. That is not true at all. And I just want to close that one out real fast. We don't want your money. We want you to surrender your life to Jesus Christ and put yourself under his authority. That's what we want you to do. But I want to talk about this whole concept of spiritual, or, of, uh, or this uh, spiritual discipline of giving and, and just kind of tell you where we land here at Cornwall Church. Here at Cornwall Church, we believe that biblically God tells us to give generously, to give regularly, and to give cheerfully. 
because God loves a cheerful giver. He's always going to take money from a grumpy giver, but he likes a cheerful giver. Okay, that one won't make it in the next service either. Wow. (laughs) A little bit of levity here, guys. Here at Cornwall Church, we believe that the tithe 10% 10% of, of your, your check is, the, fir, is the, the, the first standard of giving. It's a foundational starting point to guide giving. Now, before you say there's nothing in the New Testament about the, the tithe, uh, hold on, theological cowboy. Don't saddle up and ride yet. Let me walk you through how we come to that point. When it comes to the tithe, tithe means 10%. And if you go to the Old Testament, before the law, Okay, before God gives Moses the law. There's a guy named Abraham. You know, Father Abraham, Father Abraham, Father Abraham. Abraham tithes to a guy named Melchizedek. It's a long story. We don't have time to go into it. But there's a principle of the tithe even before the law. Enter God and Moses. God gives Moses the law, says, I want my Jewish people to tithe. Tithe means 10%. In all actuality, they were tithing sometimes 25 to 35%, depending on the circumstances. That's for another sermon and another time. We'll keep it. There's nothing about the tithe in the New Testament. Actually, there is. Fast forward to Luke chapter 6. Jesus affirms the tithe as a standard of giving when he's talking to the Pharisees, the religious leaders. Well, that was before Jesus went to the cross. Okay, let's keep on going then. Jesus always raised the bar. If he affirms the tithe at 10%, he always raises the bar in everything. Uh, Give you an example, adultery. Adultery is more than sleeping around on your spouse. If you look at another person lustfully, you've committed adultery. He's raising that bar. You've got a, a poor widow who is at the temple, and Jesus grabs all of his disciples and says, hey guys, watch this. And she's putting in just... All she has, it's just a couple pennies, and she's giving from her poverty while everyone else is giving from their surplus. So Jesus raises the bar. Okay, Kip, still, he hasn't died, he's not buried, he hasn't been resurrected, so that's all good and fine, but it's a different game once that happens. Okay, so let's talk about that. Jesus goes to the cross, dies, is is buried, and is resurrected, and now you've got the new church. The early church is on fire. Things are going crazy all over the world. They're spreading out all over the world, and no one in the church is hungry or in need because they're selling their houses. They're selling all of their goods. They're given probably 70, 80, 90%. So 10% is really a pretty cool place to start. That's what we believe here at Cornwall, that that's a place to start because God wants us to give generously, regularly, and cheerfully. And because you guys do this, we're able to do a lot of things. Our vision here is to glorify God by altering the spiritual landscape one life at a time through Jesus. And we do that in three primary ways. The first way is what you're getting right here. We get great worship. We get solid biblical teaching. Your kiddos are in Explorers League, which, by the way, is the best kids program on the planet, in my opinion. We got that. But also during the the week, guys, we've got incredible leaders in our student ministry program. We've got an incredible middle middle school program, high school program, and young adult college age program. And we get to do that because of your obedience to the tithe, your, your, your generosity, that you're giving regularly, cheerfully, and generously. We get to do that. Another way we do it, the second way, is through our community life pillar, where we have small groups and quads, uh, discipleship quads, scores upon scores of these. Guys, this makes a big church feel really small. You get to live life together with people, you get to study about Jesus together, and you get to know somebody and also be known by somebody. Also, we have in that community life pillar our healing network, uh, divorce care, grief share, 
These things we get to do to walk with people in brokenness because of your generosity, because you give generously, regularly, and cheerfully, because that's what God calls us to do. And then last but not least, we have our go and be ministry, where we go and be the hands and feet of Jesus outside these walls. We do that in a bunch of different ways. We do it with serving in public schools, where we just show up to a public school and say, surprise, we're doing an extreme school makeover, and we just vomit beauty bark all over the place. And it's amazing. And we have schools calling us saying, hey, can you guys help us out? Yeah, a public school calls a church. Who does that? It's because of your generosity. It's so cool that we get to work with Lighthouse, uh, the Lighthouse Mission to alleviate suffering of homelessness, that we're working with Engedi Ministries that is trying to stop the, the, uh, the, the slave trade, sex slave trade along the I-5 corridor. You're part of that miracle because you give generously, regularly, and cheerfully. We work with Skookum kids, foster kids that are in the worst time of their life. And Skookum kids comes in and helps them, and you're part of that. See, for us, giving is not just a duty, it's at the heart of all we do. It's not just a duty, it's at the heart of all we do. But here's the rub. Let me go back to Linda's and my story. Because I'm really good at giving when times are good. It's like, oh yeah, praise Jesus, I got the money, ka-ching. But then when times are rough, it's like, eh, pump the brake. So back in 2009, retired from the military, and I, I, we've got a, a, people living in our house up here in Ferndale. I accept a position in Bend, Oregon at a great church, a great senior pastor, but it just wasn't a fit. So one year to the day that we landed in Bend, Oregon, um, I resigned and we moved up here. I thought I was going to be an associate pastor of a church. It wasn't Christ the King. It wasn't Cornwall Church. Don't send Grant or Bob an email. Um, it was another church, and it just didn't work out. It, the, they couldn't work out the whole package. It, it was a hot mess. Um, so I would go for 20 months without a job. Now, mind you, I had my military pension that paid about a third of our bills. But we still got a mortgage to pay. We got kids in high school, a kid in college, all that fun stuff. And so I said to my lovely bride, hey, honey, I don't know if you're up on current events, but we don't have enough money to make it through the end of the month. And she looks at me and says, so, pastor, and she doesn't call me pastor because that would be weird, but... So, pastor, you always preach about, you know, being obedient and everything. Don't you think God's going to show up? We got to do this. We got to do the tithe. I'm like, oh, I hate it when she's right like that. And so I said, yes, dear, you're right. And we did. And it was hard. But here's what was so cool. Every month, God showed up in some crazy way. We, we, we made bankroll or whatever you want to call it. We, we, we could pay the bills every month. And the reason why, I get a phone call uh, from a military chaplaincy. I wasn't a chaplain in the military, but I got a weird story. So they'd say, hey, can you come out to these military bases and tell your weird story and talk about Jesus? Yeah, okay. And so I do that. And, and so I, I was running men's conferences and things like that. I get a phone call from a church. Hey, we need you to come out and preach. Can you do that? Oh, yeah, I can do that. And so God showed up most months. But then there were some months where we're going, oh, oh God, burning bush, please, nothing, crickets. And we're sitting around the table one day and we're going, you know, we've got this, you went to Financial Peace University and, and they have you do all these different envelopes. We got an envelope for a rainy day. Uh, 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 when, when the rainy day hits, we got an envelope for that. We, it, it's a rainy day. So we pulled out that account and we started spending out of that. And then God convicted us because he didn't show up the next month either. He actually showed up by convicting us of that. Next month, we're still waiting. There's nothing. And so God placed it on our hearts. You got some luxury items that are necessities. You got to get rid of it. 
You got to sell your car. So, and so we did. And God showed up. And we did that for 20 months. And the lesson learned from that isn't, oh, look how holy Kip is. It's not that at all. Because I didn't want to do it. I mean, my wife's a spiritually mature one, and she was the one that convinced me that it was the right thing to do. Two things I learned, two lessons that I learned from that that I want to share with you. First one is, Jesus is here to be your life, not to get things for your life. Jesus is here to be your life. When you surrender your life to Jesus, it's a new agenda. And what happens is, is Satan wants to thwart that agenda, and he knew right where to hit me. It hit me right in my, in my bank account because I had this love for money. He's not here to get a bunch of stuff for your life. He wants you to surrender your life to him in every area. But then the second thing was, it was an obedience issue. You know, God calls on us to give generously, regularly, and cheerfully. And I'll just leave it at that. No guilt and shame, okay? No guilt and shame. He wants us to give generously, regularly, and cheerfully. So we learned those two lessons. As I said, uh, I want to get practical here. And one of the the passages in in the Bible that Linda and I clung to during that time was Malachi 3, verse 10. God's speaking to the Israelites, and he's, he's angry. I mean, he's mad. He's saying, listen, guys, you've been robbing me. You got, life is going well for you, and you are robbing me. So he says these words. He says, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house, and test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. This is the only time in Scripture in which God says, test me on this. Here's what he's not saying. Give to the church and you'll be rich. He's not saying that at all. And I've heard pastors say that, and I just want to, like, throw something at him. That's not what he's saying. With Linda and I, we, we tithed. And the reason why we did is we knew it was, it was something we're called to do. And God always showed up. And that blessing was emotional, uh, emotional blessings, spiritual blessings, and sometimes some physical blessings. And it was amazing. So, as I said, I want to get very practical here about giving and what it means. Because with giving, the reason why we do this, the reason why I'm excited about talking about this today, is, is that with that spiritual discipline, when you open your hands, God moves in your life. I saw it in our life. I've seen it in so many lives, and I want that for you. So let's get very practical. Here at Cornwall Church, we try to remove every obstacle we can when it comes to giving. And, and so the obstacle to giving that, that can, can be out there are just different ways you can give. So let's roll through this. Look at four of them. The first one is the old-fashioned one. It's the envelope. When you came in, you were given a blue thing called the link. Open it up. It's got an envelope in there. Don't play tic-tac-toe on it. Don't write a nasty note to the pastor about how you disagreed with his sermon and then come up and do a drive-by shooting, giving it to him and running away. That's happened before a couple times. It's not for that. You can put in cash, check, or credit, and, and you can do that. It's, it's self-explanatory. But the other way is giving online. You can go to cornwallchurch.com, click the Give button. We use PushPay. It's a great organization that allows us to give securely, and, and so you can just set up your PushPay account, boom, that easy. Uh, another way is through the app. We want everyone to download the app for many reasons. One of them is you can watch our sermons, you can uh, get push notifications on our reading plan, or if we're closing down the church because of something goofy going on uh, with the weather, you get that. But also you can give from the app. That's a cool thing. This other one is text to give. Okay, we're sitting in a creative arts meeting, and I think we just had too much caffeine one day. And we're saying, hey, we ought to try text to give because all the kids out there, they're texting. And (laughs) 
No one's used it in two years. Zero. <laughs> Goose eggs. So if you want to do text to give, you can be the first one. And as I said earlier, you may be saying, Cornwall just wants my money. Guys, we don't want your money. We want you to surrender your life to Jesus. And, and, and part of that is building in that, that, that spiritual discipline of tithing. It's important. And it's an important step for you. And if you don't want to tithe to Cornwall, tithe to someone, some other church. But tithe because you'll grow. Okay, so the last part, last part of this. Every time we do a, a series on finances, we, we, we do what's called the tithe test guarantee. It's not Easter, but we're resurrecting this bad boy. Um, tithe test guarantee, it's in your card. Some of you just need, a, 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 it's in your, your uh, bulletin. Some of you just need a safety net when it comes to trying out this thing called tithing. So here's what we do. As I said, we've done this for 10 years, and we're, we're doing it this year. For the next 90 days, what you got to do is you fill out this card, and, when, and you drop it off in guest services here or Skagit. You guys drop it off. For those of you watching online uh, who are part of this, just send, fill it out and send it to us. Um, you fill this out, and for the next 90 days, you commit to tithing. If during that time, between now and May 15th, you got to fill out this card, if something happens and you're like, you know, nope, I'm not going to do it. Maybe you have a, a financial crash and you just can't afford doing it. You can just send a note to our finance department, to us here at Cornwall. Cornwall. You don't have to explain anything. Just say, I'm part of the tithe test guarantee. I've been doing my tithe. I've attached my name to my tithe, all that fun stuff. And I, I just want to stop. Pastor Bob and I, Pastor Brian, none of us will know that you're doing this because none of us pastors know who tithes in the church. We stay away from that. So you fill this out and make sure when you tithe, your name is attached to that tithe because at the end of 90 days, if you're saying, uh, hey, I gave $57,250, I want my money back, that, that's an issue. Um, so you gotta have your name attached to that tithe. You gotta have a record on that. And you try it out. We believe in this, guys. We believe in it. God says, test me on this and I will bless you. For the past 10 years that we've done it, we've had scores upon scores of people who've done it, and I think only six or seven have, have said, I, I want my money back, and they got their money back. No questions asked. It's just part of being content with your finances and trusting in God. And real quick, you know, before I close, there are some of you who came in today and you didn't want to hear anything about finances. Your marriage is breaking. You don't have a job. Uh, your, your health is a, a train wreck right now. You're the, picture, the, the poster child for a country western song. And you don't want to hear about any of this stuff, and I get that. So if I can just encourage you, going back to those words of Jonathan Edwards, when you receive Jesus in your life, man, he brings beauty out of the ashes. He always does. He always shows up in way, ways that you won't even understand. He'll bring beauty out of the ashes. He will never leave you nor forsake you. And then last but not least, you can do all things through him who strengthens you. The best is yet to come.